Yesterday we began discussing the nature of reproduction in the spiritual sense. And what we started off was by contrasting the relative solidities or how strong is how strong is physicality when you measure it up to concept the conceptual world or the spiritual world. Which which one which one is stronger? So intuitively if we if I say to you, what's what's more of a concrete thing? in the world, intuitively you respond and say, what do you mean? The world, this table, I can <coughs> hit, it's strong, I can feel, I can feel the solidity. Um, I can see it, I can touch it, I can bite into it and taste it. Not recommended, but then again, better than the food. It's something which is, which is solid. Something which is spiritual is so ethereal, it's so, it's so wishy-washy, it's so out there in the stratosphere. You can't, you can't call that solid. But when we think about it, as we did yesterday, the opposite is actually true. Because what the table itself, the table doesn't exist. Meaning, the form that the table takes, that form is a concept. It's not a reality. It's not a reality in the physical sense. The form of the table, which means in order to, for me to support my reading material, I should have a flat surface supported by a number of legs, make it six, made of metal, the wood, the, 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 the board on top should be made of wood. That idea, that idea is indestructible in the physical sense. I can't take an axe and cut down my idea. I can take an axe, I can destroy the table. The table, the table is fickle, it can be destroyed, it can, it can get old. That idea remains forever. Now, patience. What what makes an idea strong or weak? Ah, that's interesting. In other words, ideas versus things, ideas, when hands down. The idea behind, the concept, the plan, is way stronger than the thing itself because the plan is indestructible in the physical sense as long as it, it can be documented, it can last for thousands of years. You can find a, an ingredient of how to make a potion from ancient Egypt and you can make it today. The potion has long since gone off. So the idea is way stronger than the physical manifestation. So physical versus conceptual, physical is, 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 a, is a midget compared to the powerful giant of conceptual. But the truth is conceptual is not always that strong because conceptual can also have, you can't break it down with an X, how can you break it down? How do you, how do you destroy a concept other than amnesia? How do you destroy a concept, a concept which is alive and well, it's living in the world? How do you break it? Well, you prove it wrong. You show that it's flawed. In other words, in its conceptual realm, it doesn't work. Now, as an analogy, if you have a person that has an idea, for example, the world is flat. Now, that was an idea which was, which was widely held of until this very day. Please consult the Flat World Society. Um, but the world, the world apparently is not flat. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm still... Yeah, it's not... I, the world's not flat. But the idea of the world being flat was around for, for years, hundreds and maybe thousands of years. What happened? Well, you can say Columbus, you can say others, but it turned out the world's round. Now that we've got satellites, we can see it. The world is round. So what happened to that idea? It was such a great idea, because you looked ahead of you and behind you, you saw Tucker, the four corners of the earth, posh it. And then all of a sudden, that idea was proven wrong. So in other words, it's because the facts didn't fit reality. So when the idea doesn't conform to the construct within which it's meant to express an accuracy, it dissolves. The idea of the flat world is a description of a physical reality. 
when the physical reality is not, doesn't follow the description, it crumbles. If I de decide to design the ultimate surfboard, a surfboard that you, Josh Ford, could surf on with ease. Now, I'm not saying that you're not talented in surfing. Actually, I am. You're not talented in surfing. I think you're... I grew up on a beach town and everyone, that's all they did was surf. And yet, you couldn't quite stand on a board. I was a great surfer. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to take the back. I wanna, I'm going to look at someone who clearly has no surfing. So you, ca you can surf. Yeah! <laughs> well, I mean, had you told me, we could have... I come from a family of surfers. Oh, sorry. Wow, that was a bad judgment. Eh? <laughs> that was... Short the the that they're surfers. Cowabunga. So, 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 so basically, what I'm, what I'm trying to... Huh? You hit a nerve. No, what, what, I think is, what I think is amazing is, 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 is my concept of you was just kind of collided with reality. <laughs> And it's a far better illustration than the surfboard one. That's a nice recovery. No, meaning. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I set it up that way is in order to illustrate <laughs> that my misconception of you was an idea. And when it came to being manifest in your apparently unsurfing nature, which became within seconds totally surfadic. Um, so. No, I can't surf. <laughs> <laughs> I do come from a family of surfers, but I can't say. I thought I was right. Yeah, I just presented facts in a way that would make it seem like I could surf. I never actually said I could surf. Oh, yeah. Did I say I could surf? I, I think you may have. I, I, think, I, think, I think when you said those words, like, I'm a great surfer, oh. I, think <laughs> we, I think we could infer from that that maybe... <laughs> in theory, I should be a great surfer. But you're not a great surfer. No. Okay, well, let's... But, so I'm going to design a surfboard. Okay, let's go back to the point. The point is I'm trying to design the surfboard, and the surfboard that I'm trying to design is going to be perfect even for you to become a great surfer. No, it could be it's, it's, it's a bit wide. It's a, bit a boat. Okay, I want to design something which is not as extreme as a boat, but it's still going to be surfable for you. Gewaldic. Okay. Now, that works well until I can't... I mean, I'm working within a construct. I'm working with a construct that the materials have to be able to stay afloat on the water. The balance has to be secure enough to support your not-so-balanced sticker body. So all those factors come into, those are the constructs I'm functioning within. And with those constructs, I design the board. Now, if the board doesn't work, it means it doesn't fit into the construct. It's undermined by the reality. The external reality says, that's rubbish. Whatever construct you're dealing with, if the idea, if the thing is true, so it aligns itself to the external construct, the external construct can have being the floatability on water, the, the way that it, that, it, that it gets together with the wave, and those things come together. There's an alignment. If the, con if the construct, if the idea is untrue, so it means there's a collision between the framework and the suggested idea that's meant to live within that framework. If the idea doesn't coincide with the framework, boom, it's the world being flat is in the framework of the Earth. When, it's, when you go around the world, you see it wasn't flat because it didn't fall off the side. So there's a collision between the framework and what you're suggesting. You're following me. So there's a framework and a suggestion. An idea is demolished when you can point out the inconsistency between the idea and the framework to which it belongs. Wait, wait, wait. No? It's not clear? No, no. That, that I mean, it's clear, but it seems to be based... Maybe I'm assuming, but it seems to be based on a certain assumption that... Or, or it seems to imply that any idea 
that can't be illustrated within the framework of, of the physical reality is, is, is a lie. No, so what I'm saying is follows. The physical reality is purely an analogy. It acts as an example of how this process functions. We all understand that if you design a table to support your books, but it only has two legs, it's not going to be effective. Most probably. Because the structure of the laws of physics and weight distribution do not allow for that to exist in reality. So therefore, the idea, the idea is a great idea. The way I demolish that idea is by demonstrating its collision with the framework that it assumes to be a part of. That's called an idea being falsified or is assumed to be true, it becomes falsified. In other words, the way you destroy a table is you take an axe and you, and you, and you hit, hit the tree. The way you destroy an idea is to show that it doesn't work in its framework. It's illogical, it doesn't make sense. In its own framework? In its, everything's got a framework. Okay? So what about things that... Wait! Right? Wait! wait. You, make, you make things so complicated when they should be so straightforward okay. by your incessant interruptions. Okay. Inse- I want you to focus on those incessant interruptions okay. and I want you to eliminate them. Okay. What you should be is you should be out surfing. Sorry. I can't surf. That's a problem. <laughs> I think a problem is a deeply ingrained problem and therefore what happens is you vent your frustration not being a surfer on poor rabbis who are just trying to give up a basic idea and He's can't. Surfing. He's surfing. He's surfing. He's surfing. The kids are as follows. What we say is that if you try to weigh a concept in regards to a physical structure, when the concept itself conforms to its framework, the table does stand. So the table you can break, the concept you can't break. It will be around forever. As long as the physical world is around, it will be around. Just as there are physical constructs, the way that the physical world operates, there are non-physical constructs, called the spiritual world. That spiritual world is also a framework, and that spiritual world also has rules and laws that allow it to function. And if a person has an idea which coincides, which is aligned to the spiritual world, that idea is called true. If that idea is in collision with the spiritual world, that idea is called false. Therefore, what happens is, what happens is that an idea, the ultimate, I'm not saying what is true and what is false, but something the ultimate longevity will be possessed by the idea that is true. What's the thing that's indestructible? The only thing which is indestructible that will last forever is truth. Everything else will eventually collapse. Everything else will eventually collapse. And truth means something which is reality. Something which is. Meaning it has no point to it that can destruct. Wait, wait. Don't even look at me like that. It's very disturbing. You look at me like that. What am I meant to do? Just ignore you? How would you like it if you're in my seat and you're like this person looking at you like <laughs> as if they're being constricted and suffocated so that they can't be let out of the game. Do you want to say something? And there's the last thing you can say for the next at least 20 minutes. Okay, okay. Okay, right. make it good. What about faces? Faces are off limits too? No faces, no, 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 no even <laughs> non-verbal <laughs> indications of your frustration. Okay, okay good. So, so the, this, the, the whole idea of a spiritual world is based on something that can't be observed physically. So Go on. That, that is something that can't be proved within the construct that we operate in. So uh, You're making a very, very big assumption that the only construct that is provable is a physical one. That's, that's where we're working from, that's our perspective. It's one of our perspectives. Who says we can't have a spiritual perspective? Mm-hmm. I would I would disagree that there's 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 huge parts of our 
functioning cognitive reasoning abilities which aren't locked into the spiritual world. So aren't locked into the physical world, I beg your pardon. Yes? For example, give an example. In the physical world, the law of cause and effect is dictated by a certain set of rules. Take for example, lions. When they are hungry, they eat. Let's say one of their preferred foods are known as impala. Those are a type of antelope which roam the African plains. So, when a lion is hungry, it goes out to hunt. As far as I know, there's been no movement within prides of lions to like vote for vegetarianism. And say, like, you know, how long, how long can we impose this cruel abuse of impalas? Impalas are free to roam. And where do we, as these cruel and um, aggressive colonials, colon, col colon, get the word there? Colonialists. I thought you might know that word. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you think the lines are the colonialists. Oh, hello, Mr. Impala. I'm <laughs> saying, <laughs> you're, you're assuming that the, the lines are basing their oppression. Dave, Dave, it's a marshal. Uh, it's a colonialist marshal. <laughs> <laughs> Go and flesh it out. Why is my beautiful marshal? I mean, just think. First of all, it's romantic, right? You've got the African playing in the background. You've got the miles and miles. Romantic for them. <laughs> what? Okay. Go back. The the reason why the marshal doesn't work is because because, because colonialism is the the way you're fr putting it. Colonialism is, colonialism is predicated on causing suffering for the benefit of an overlord. The lions don't have an overlord. I understand. But, you know, well, they do already. They've got the head of the pride. Yeah, but he's not, he's not abstract. He's the king. Else. He's the king. Yeah, but he's not somewhere else. What do you mean he's not somewhere else? That's the whole point of colonialism. What do you mean? He's there. Yeah, he's exactly. He's near the tree. And then the Apollo over there. Because he sends them out. Of course, oh, of course. Oh, what, do you think the... Uh, Granted. Yeah, he gets the lioness. He does the hunting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> When I said colonial, yeah, colonial, oh, but then you've also got paternalism. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things thrown in there also. Okay, right. good. It's a good martial art. <laughs> I'm happy. So, so. I'm sorry. But there's no, there's, no, there's a certain, there's a certain strict cause and effect that throughout the last thousand years, lions are predators and they remain predators, and and impalas are animals of prey and they remain animals of prey. The the, the physical world doesn't shift. There's no kind of where one day a lion will make up, wake up with a moral conscience and decide that today shouldn't eat any policy, should go for the vegetarian option. It doesn't work. Whereas people, people do that the whole time. People have moral conflicts. The minute you enter into the area and the space of a moral conflict, you're acknowledging an existence of a, something which is a higher realm. Because in the world of physicality, there's actually something called smoke. Smoke stands for simple mode of simple simple method of something crime I forgot what the middle I think it's that simple simple something of, of crime the bottom line is like this the theory of smoke goes that a person simple model of rational crime simple model of rational crime I think it has a sense for in other words rational crime is as follows why do people cheat why do people steal so Smork advocates the following thing. It's based on a, uh, a cost-benefit analysis. If I'm going to be able to profit from my crime, meaning that uh, I'm in an office, 
if my chances of being caught are very slim and the profits are great, so then I'll engage in the crime. If the chances are great and the profits are slim, I won't. And in between, there's a lot of room for movement. So this, this, this is kind of was a theory which, is, which is becomes quite um, pertinent to, to economic analysis because you have to figure out who's cheating and where they're cheating and how much they're cheating and where they're cheating. So there's, there's a book that I'm presently reading. It's, he's, he's very creative in his experiments, Dan Ariely, about, uh, we discussed it before, the, the way we lie to ourselves, the honest, something, the honest truth about how we lie to ourselves. He challenges this model. He challenges the model with a series of different exper experiments and he finds a recurring pattern that people do cheat but they generally cheat within a certain within a certain um, bandwidth they don't go beyond a certain point in their cheating the average person of course there are people who cheat incredibly there are people who never cheat in other words the way expressed I think is why do you have locks on our doors? Burglars, you know, can pick any door. If you're an experienced burglar, you don't need to, if you, uh, Vahoraya, if you want to become a burglar, what you should do is train as a locksmith. Locksmiths are, hey, we know, can open any door. Train as a locksmith, and then no door will be closed to you. It's like learning shots. Um, train as a locksmith and then you become a burglar and then you can kill two birds with one stone or it depends if it's violent crime or not but you you can get into any door so so doors and locks aren't there for burglars professional thieves can get through doors and they clearly aren't there for people who never steal because even if the door's wide open they won't go in there and help themselves to the to the to the candelabra yeah. so who, who are doors and locks for well they're for the people in between the people who aren't mummish burglars but they're not mamish honest. So they'll, if the door's open and it's in front of them, and <laughs> anyway, look at him. He's so rich. He's not going to miss one extra iPad. So I'll just gently <laughs> remove it from him. save him money on insurance and put it in my bag and off I go and do him a favor. So those are the kind of people you have to be scared of. Because uh, they are the ones that, that's where, that's, where that's where the vast majority of crime occurs. It's not the person that goes and he embezzles his firm for a million dollars. It's a person that, you know, when he goes on a work-sponsored holiday, he's uh, generous with the way he defines his working activities. Like, uh, uh, it was necessary for me to spend that amount of money on the biggest steak restaurant and have the biggest steak in the restaurant with a group of six friends who who may one day become interested in the field that I'm working with and I didn't mention the idea of where I'm employed, so it's business. You know, it's like you always like try to bring in some, some, some type of topic about which is business related. Oh, it's a business lunch. It's not my own. I've happened to know these people for 40 years. <laughs> you never know. They could go into the field. So that's where it happens. That's where it happens. In those areas, it's interesting. But uh, the one experience he did was he took a he took in a college campus in a communal fridge, in a in a dorm, and he put uh, two bottles of coke, or a six pack of coke, and he waited for two weeks. After two weeks, gone. Then he took, I think it was six separate dollar bills and left them in the in the, in the fridge. Two weeks later, they were all there. Okay, obviously not in Austin's campus. <laughs> <laughs> Austin's campus, he came back and the fridge was gone. 
should have written on the code, not for love you strong. Wasn't he Shiva? So you see that there's, there's a certain thing which we all relate to, and that is when it comes to something which is clearly wrong, very few people would go and rob a bank. But they would perhaps fudge things so that it could accumulate over a period of years a decent amount of money. That's stolen. But uh, people won't won't hold themselves back from taking office stationery. You know they need they need a <laughs> office stationery because no, you don't understand. They the reason why they put the stationery is they want me to take it home with me and give it to my kid so he can put it into his pencil case. Well, that's why there's a surplus. That's why there's a surplus because they. That's the intention. The kid can learn and maybe one day work. One day, yeah. Hey? They were mine, they were mine. But they work, they work people taking it in anyway, so... Yeah, they, they assume you take it. They want me to take it. On the contrary, hotels design their tiles with logos in order that you can spread the word in your bathroom. So that you can remember it's advertising. And remember your trip. And yeah, on the contrary. Those, those dressing gowns are meant to go into the bottom of your case. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly. So that's the kind of thing that, that why is that? It's strange. But in other words, you won't go up to, you won't like look around and steal something from a shop, but you will steal this way. Well, what's the difference? You know, if, if you go into a shop and there'd be like tiles arranged in, in, in piles, you know, look around, no one's watching, <laughs> run off a tile. You never do such a thing. Hustle, what am I gonna? You call me a gunner, I'm a gunner. <laughs> Oh, and it's an hotel room, and I was looking, and I was looking at the bottom, okay, he's gently, 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 and, oh, no, and you maybe even like, you dried yourself with it first, so who's going to use it now? <laughs> I can't use a towel once people, someone's used it, it's ridiculous. That's called moral conflict. All of that is moral conflict. It means that you can't do the thing against yourself. You can't openly cheat, you can't openly lie, you can't openly steal. So you kind of, you have to, you have to fudge it. You have to fudge it a little bit. A shtickle. A bitterle. Good? Okay. So, so therefore, it could be that there's a whole range. There's a whole range of things that we're dealing with on a very daily basis. It's part of the experience of our life, which are completely non-physical. The whole, the whole area of ethics and morals is a non-physical area. It goes against it. Physically speaking, you've got smoke. Just do it. If you're going to get away with it, do it. But people don't work that way. People can get away with murder, but when it becomes... Something which I can't rationalize. If I can rationalize, it's one thing. But why do you need a rationalization? Who are you trying to convince? Why, why, why? The answer is you need to rationalize because you can't face yourself. Why can't you face yourself? Because there's a higher system that's simultaneously operating inside of yourself, asking you, calling you to say, no, no, no. And that's where I'd like to ponder that's the area where things become really solid. Those are the those are the those are the building blocks of reality. Everything else is pretty flimsy and comes and goes and disintegrates eventually. But that that realm, that realm of rationalization and morality, those things are solid. Those things are really steadfast. If they true. If they true. Now what's interesting is that if something is true, so then it perpetuates, it never comes to an end. Because it's a reality. The reality, something which is true is a reality, and therefore something which works, works, can't unwork. For example, if I say to you, do you know what? I believe that the fact that wheels roll is a myth. It's a myth, I don't hold of it. I don't hold of it. I think square things roll. I'm a shaiter. 
I'm an absolute fool because wheels roll. And they're always going to roll. And always and always and always. There's a great, uh, there's a great far side cartoon with a caveman inventing the wheel. And like, they invented square. So like, they push it down a hill and like, based on momentum, <laughs> smooths the edges. <laughs> then you have a wheel. So obviously, you know, when they get to the bottom of the hill, they don't like, they say, oh my gosh, my wheel's broken. And then they kind of like, shape it up again. So it's square again. Oh, let's start from scratch. <laughs> things, which are, things which are real are real. So now it could be that they're things which are morally real. It means that there's, there's this entire reality which we can sense as well. It's not beyond our concept. That there's an entire reality of stuff that's more solid than solid can be. It's more solid. And they say that those ideals are the ideals which are perpetuated since the beginning of time. So that's when we, when we go in the direction of what we've been discussing over here in the Maral of the Tselem Elohim. So that's the kind of direction we're trying to go into. We're trying to establish a sense of self which is more solid than the flesh that clothes us. Ultimately, once a person, there's two places of yourself you can relate to. You can relate to your body or the expressions thereof where those things are, they have an expiry date on them. They don't last forever. They kind of, over the course of time, degenerate and decline until they eventually become absorbed back into the ground and that's it. Or you can relate to yourself, which, 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 which if it's true, it means it's indestructible. It's absolutely indestructible. Now, if we could get a sense of the indestructible sense of self, so it means that we'd live with the notion of eternity. It wouldn't be a belief, it would be an experience. If we could relate to that self that's eternal, meaning the part of myself which is true, part of myself which is predisposed towards kindness. They say kindness is a true value. It cannot be destructed. It, it fits kindness, care. Those things which are, those things which are, which can't be broken down. Will always be. There will, there will never be a, a time in the world where, just like the wheel, the wheel will always roll, there will never be time when people say, cruelty is the way to go. There's an intuitive sense inside us, deep, deep, deep inside of the being, in the reality of this world, that that's kindness, is it? So if I can relate to the kindness inside of myself, what I've done is, i found a part of myself which is real and indestructible. And at that point in time, death just becomes a, a, a kind of... A, kind of a revelation, a liberation, that until death a person is locked into mortal con combat with this, this other side which is pulling him away and suggesting an alternative perspective of reality, one which is completely governed by the senses and what you see is what, you, what is. After death uh, it frees you from that struggle and you can just fly. The notion of flight is very, very, very interesting. Because it means that a person becomes unfettered. He's no longer bound by the chains of existence. And that can be exceptionally liberating. So it's a different perspective of death. Because if a person becomes enmeshed in his body, and the Gemara gives two analogies for that, the kind of the moment of death, how it takes place. A person that becomes connected to his inner spiritual self. So the process of death is a very easy process. And I don't know exactly why the Gemara uses these two items to describe the transition says it's like taking hair out of milk. Now obviously there's depth in using that particular liquid with that particular object, but putting that aside, whereas taking the 
soul, the inner essence, the true reality of a person that enmeshed in his physicality is like trying to separate wool from a thorn tree. Un, unspun wool, like clumps of wool that you just, you just share the sheep and then you've got these big balls of, balls of unspun wool and they get caught in like a very, a very densely dense thorn bush with big thorns and you try to pull it out but as much as you can pull out it gets caught and, you get, and it's almost impossible to extract and when you get used like bit by bit by bit and, and the thing is so enmeshed it's so integrated it's so connected it pull and you pull and you can't get out so the transition that we're trying to experience in our own lifetime is die before you die die before you die save yourself the hassle meaning get to a level get to a level Sorry, oh, I don't mean nah, I don't mean nah. Yeah. Also, also, not nah, not nah. Yeah, yeah, it does sound quite horrible. Die before you die. Okay, but listen, yeah. there's an upside. Look, just think about how uh, death doesn't have to be morbid anymore. But it means as follows. It means that transcend the physicality and live on the spiritual plane in the earthly realm and then you never die. You never die. Come the point in time where you shuffle off your mortal coil and you step into a different kind of reality where you, where you become unrestricted and, uh, and that could be quite, quite nice you know? so, so that's, that's really a sum up of the direction that the Maharal says us that these two, where Rabbi Akiva and Ben Azai are, are pushing for is respond to yourself like that because one of the interesting benefits of that connection to self is what we've mentioned previously was the nature of a, the nature of the effect that it has on relationships. The minute you start to connect your, to your, that part of yourself, so then you start to see that part of others, and then you can totally connect. You find the, you find the essence, and then obviously the connection is not only more solid, closer, but it's much more real, because the thing that you're connecting to doesn't have an expiry date on it. The point of connection is a part of persona which is indestructible. And that's what you connect to. I mean, that connection will never dissipate. So then you move from the eternity of self to the eternity of connection. Eternal love. Fascinating. Eternal love means that you make a connection with a person in a part of themselves which is indestructible. So those two parts of you and and you and you, the lover and the beloved, will always be enmeshed. Never the twain shall part. You follow? So that's a completely. So it comes on. Okay, good. Now it comes on Ben Azai, and he plugs in the same idea to Puravu, being fruitful and multiplying, and he's saying essentially, to a certain degree, that also occurs in having children. Having children is not just a reproduction of another physical form because that physical form one day will die. Rather it's a continuation of a pre-existing eternal being that finds new expression. Just like if I have in my mind the form of a, of a mug that form of the mug I can make it on this piece of clay and then another piece of clay and another piece of clay. The form never dies. So when my form is true, not only does it manifest itself in me, but I then impart that form to my offspring. And then they carry the form further. The form is eternal. 
but it needs a bearer for that form. So the child becomes the bearer of the form that I already possess. And then you have a completely a new vision of what parenthood is about. Parenthood, and I think we intuitively relate to this as well, the deepest essence of parenthood is the ability to give the eternal part of myself to my child, my values, the things which are indestructible. That's really what I want. And that's why you find with Baalei Tshuva, often there's incredible conflict which arises between parents and children. Because every parent on a certain level feels that the greatest gift I can give to my child are my values, is my form. It's not the fact that I'm giving them my physical being, that they've got the same genes as me. It's that the lessons of life that I've learned, the values that I hold dear, I can now impart, I can live furthermore. This form that I have will be perpetuated in my children. And when the children then say to their parents, Mm-mm, I don't want that. I'm going on a completely different path. So then it's as if they've disowned their parents. And many times in the discussions between Bali children and their parents, you will hear that that's the theme of a dialogue. Why have you rejected me? And the Baal Shiva unwittingly will reply, what do you mean? I love you. I think you're great. You're amazing. And the parents will reiterate it time and time again. And in a sense, they're right. Because by choosing a different pathway in life, there's an implicit rejection of the deepest thing that a parent has to give to a child. We're going to have to stop here. But let's just... Uh, yeah, we'll stop here and we'll fetch Simcha's How can. How do we overcome that? How do we overcome what? How do we how deal do we with our parents? <laughs> <laughs> to bring him in for a couple of sessions. I'm fishing. Uh,